0: I'm so glad for our Christ-centered biblical aspect to our view of last day events. Like most evangelicals, bless your heart, they focus totally on the literal state of Israel and literal Jerusalem, that's what they focus on. But in the dispensation of spiritual Israel, the church, they focus not a piece of real estate in this world, But the focus is on the heavenly Jerusalem that's built by God. And that's why the Advents view on last events, which is Christ-centered, biblically-based, focuses on spiritual Israel. And therefore, we don't have to think about the secret rapture, dispensationalism, the two covenant theory, the gap theory, and all these theories because we take a view on these events from a biblical, Christ-centered perspective. So in your textbook, we cover the subject of the secret rapture, dispensationalism, state of Israel, heavenly Jerusalem. and why? Because we need to present our, the Adventist view as a viable alternative alternative to all the ideas about the second coming. This became very clear to me when I was flying from Atlanta to Los Angeles on a speaking appointment. There was a young lady in front of me, a college-aged young lady reading this book, Left Behind. How many are acquainted with the Left Behind series? Very popular, millions of books around the world, fashioned the Christians view eschatology and the coming of Jesus and most Christians believe in these ideas which are not biblical we need as Adventists, to be intelligent and great communicator in presenting the biblical view of eschatology so anyway I read the book I know the book well I began to communicate with this young lady, as I like to do everywhere I travel, everywhere I meet people, to interact with them for the cause of Christ and the truth. And she began to tell me how wonderful the book was. Oh, it tells you all things about the second coming. And you, sir, I mean, while we are on this plane, the secret rapture could take place all of a sudden. And this plane could crash. And are you ready? to be raptured, because if you're not ready, you could crash. I said, excuse me, you know, uh, getting on planes usually makes me nervous. Let's not talk about crashing right now. Well, that's the truth. What, can I look at this book? Sounds so into Oh, yes, you can look at it. I look at the cover, and right on the bottom left corner in bold letters, The publishers chose to print these words, a novel, N-O-V-E-L. That's all I had to say. I said, did you notice that word there? What word? "Oh, Oh, the word on the cover so everybody could see. Would you please look at it? She looked at it. She said, I can't believe it. I've been reading a novel? You know what novels mean? This means fiction. I'm glad the Bible said we're not called upon when it comes to the truth of God and the second coming to believe in fiction, to believe in legends, but to believe in the solid word of God. Well, sir, I thought this is what the Bible taught. I didn't know this is what the novel taught. Isn't that wonderful when people realize the truth? Sir, sir. Would you please help me know what it says in the Bible about the second coming of Jesus? I need to know that. It's such an important subject. And I carried my little Bible in my pocket, and we sat together on the plane, and I gave her several Bible studies. By the way, whenever you give a Bible study on a plane that's going to Los Angeles, it takes about four hours. Now, that's four hours Bible study, which means you can cover four of them in one sitting, and the people are captives. They're held hostage by the Lord, and there is no place to go. I mean, they cannot take off, hopefully, that they stay put on a plane. You never do that. You never parachute. And for four hours, she was listening to what the novels, not what the novels say about the coming of Christ, but what the Bible says about the coming of Christ. And so when we uh, were ready to land at the airport of Los Angeles, plane landed she took this book left behind which is a novel and she put it in the garbage can i didn't tell her to do that and then she changed her mind she was a young petite college student and as if people were going forward she put it in the garbage can and now there was at least a 10 feet ahead she changed her mind, and she reversed herself. And against the traffic, she began to go backward to that garbage can. And she grabbed that book from the garbage I said, oh, she is changing her mind. My Bible study wasn't that effective. Till I realized when she came back, and people were looking at her, why in the world she is getting this thing back from the garbage can? She said, sir, my conscience bothered me. Because somebody might look at this garbage can and grab this book and read it so that I have to take it home and shred it or burn it. When you discover the precious truth from God's word, novels don't mean much to you. I wouldn't have been as radical to put in the garbage or burn it. I would have used it as a reference book in my library. But for her, She got all excited, and she said, now that I have the Bible, I don't need a novel. Now I know the truth from God's Word. I don't need any more to believe in fiction. Aren't you thankful to God as 70 Adventist Christians? You can hold the Bible in your hand. You have to make no apologies, and I say, I put my faith on His Word. Would somebody say amen to that? And whenever I witness to somebody while I'm flying or traveling or meeting somebody in my spheres of influence doing business and they know I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and they say, would you please uh, summarize in one sentence what you believe? One sentence. We have 28 fundamental beliefs. It takes a long time to explain who we are. Would you please take all of these doctrines and summarize them in one sentence? And the Lord gives me this one precise sentence. We, as 70 Adventist Christians, we're in love, deeply in love, and loyal to the living word, Jesus, and to the written word, the Bible. That's a perfect answer, I think. It's a perfect answer. What more do you want? Loyal to Jesus, a Savior and Lord, loyal to Jesus, someone we love and obey, loyal to Jesus to put our full trust in the Word of God because our, te- our distinctive teachings are all found in the Bible. In the Bible. All of them in the Bible. While you're different than others, we can to give the Sabbath exactly because the Sabbath is in the Bible. Oh yeah, yeah, but things have changed. We should be more pro- progressive. No. I will revere forever the day God rested on and the day He blessed And the day he sanctified. Wouldn't that be an important day? And the day that Jesus kept. Uh, I ask people, I know it's confusing today which day to keep, but would we go wrong if we keep the day Jesus kept? No. Well, let's discover which day Jesus kept. It was his custom to honor the seven-day Sabbath And he said, I'm the Lord of that day. Thank the Lord. We don't need to be proud. We just need to be thankful that you and I are anchored in the sure word of God. Now, you know, with the seminar, as I talk about eschatology and the second coming of Jesus and the secret rapture, because there's a special section in our seminar and textbook about the subject and how witness to these people. And I just want to tell you that uh, uh, people, you know, even though I'm a, uh, an American citizen, naturalized 50 years ago, I'm so proud to be a citizen, I'm probably more proud than some of you. And I appreciate America more than some people who take it for granted. And so people want to know, oh, you, you have an interesting accent. Thank you very much. And where do you come from? Well, I come from Georgia. Oh, no, before Georgia, where do you come from? Oh, I come from Mar- before Maryland, Michigan. Oh, no, where were you born? <laughs> Syria. Oh, really? Yes. Well, you were the perfect speaker for the seminar on the ISIS crisis. I agree with them, part of the response, I'm the speaker, but I'm not perfect. You are the perfect speaker. I'm not perfect. I'm just a speaker. I'm learning a lot. And then they say, some of them say, I can't believe it. Can anything good? You, you, get, you get my hint here. Can anything good come out of Syria? Yes. ISIS, amen for what? You have to know what you're amening for, okay? ISIS, is there violence? Al-Qaeda? Oh, the biggest, most, Tragic thing that's happening in the world that impact the whole world. Can anything good come out of there? And who said Amen? Please, I want to hold you. It will affect your grade, final grade. You said Amen. Would you please tell me why you said Amen for? Because something good came out of that. You're stealing my thunder. That was my next punchline. <laughs> you should be the speaker right now. Come up here and take my place. They said the same thing to Jesus. You're an A student, aren't you? And they said, who said that, by the way? Nathaniel. Philip, the same as my name, took Nathaniel to introduce to Jesus. Now we're talking about Jesus, the perfect speaker. I'm no perfect speaker. I want to introduce you to Jesus, and Nathaniel knew he was from Nazareth. And he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So if if anybody tries to stereotype you, Remember, you're in good company. You're in good company with Jesus and your teacher uh, Philip Saman. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Syria? I- I've seen this happen, by the way. I've seen all kinds of committees in my career in the church. And I've literally heard people say, What do you expect of this guy? After all, <laughs> he comes from the Bronx. <laughs> What do you expect of this person? This is his background. Can anything but come out of people from that part of the country or the world? And God has his people everywhere. He has people even in Cedar Lake, Michigan. <laughs> oh, the Adventists on the east coast, the south. Oh, the real Adventists are in the south, the Bible Belt, right, where I come from. Oh, what about the Low Melinda Adventists? Oh, can anything good come out of Loma Linda, California? Yes, sir. God has his people everywhere. Do you believe that? Now, what did Jesus say to the third? It's nice how Jesus responds to our criticism. Jesus, you're no good because you're from Nazareth. And Jesus looks into the eyes of Nathaniel and says, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Isn't that wonderful about Jesus? Even when we think ill of him, he thinks well of us. That's why I wrote the book, Christ's Way of Affirmation. Jesus specializes in encouragement. Satan specializes in discouragement. If you ever feel the spirit of discouragement coming upon you to discourage yourself somebody else, the source is not Christ, it's Satan. Because Jesus specializes in encouragement and affirmation. We live in such a critical society. And Christ wants us to practice his example of affirmation, first of all, in our marriage. Imagine if we husbands begin to affirm our wives in Jesus and build them up in Christ and validate them. You'll have a revival of marriage. Imagine if we follow Christ's example and affirm our children, affirm our students, affirm our friends, our church members. You will have a spirit of genuine fellowship that will find fertile ground for the outpouring of the Spirit of God in these last days. There is a true Israelite, Jesus said about Nathanael, in whom there is no guile. Jesus thinks the best of you because he focuses on the wheat and not the chaff. Everybody, all of us, more or less, have wheat and chaff. Except me. No, including me. The only person who does not have chaff is Jesus. Our mission in life is to focus on the wheat. And therefore, we can maximize the wheat and minimize the chaff. We're aware of the chaff, but we don't focus on the chaff. Because in focusing on the wheat, we maximize the wheat and minimize the chaff. And that's why if somebody can do me a favor and get me some water. I'd really appreciate it. It doesn't have to be this instant. And if you do, I will give you 15 bonus points on your final exam when we finish the seminar. I wonder who's going to get the 15 points. My wife, isn't that, This is all rehearsed and planned ahead of time. And my wife doesn't only supply me with good music, but with good refreshing water. We're talking about the Middle East and culture, holy lands, ISIS, anything good come out of there. And let me quote you a poet from Lebanon by name of Gibran Khalil Gibran, who defined genuine friendship this way. And think of the friendship you have with Jesus. He said, a genuine friend is someone into whom you can pour out the contents of your heart. Both chaff and wheat together. He keeps what's worth keeping the wheat. And with a gentle breath, (laughs) blows the chaff away. Jesus is that kind of friend you have. If you have a friend like this in this world, be thankful to God. Treasure such friendship. A genuine friend is someone to whom you can pour out the contents of your heart, both chaff and wheat together. Keeps what's worth keeping Do wheat. With a gentle breath, he blows the chaff away. Many so-called friends Blow away the wheat and keep the chaff. May it be in reverse to follow the example of Jesus. So when people ask me, only chaff comes out of Syria? I said, no, there's some wheat. Some wheat comes from the Holy Land. And as somebody said, amen, what good thing comes out of the Holy Land? The first good thing is the Lord Jesus Christ who was born in Bethlehem? Is that a wonderful, most awesome gift to the world? Think positively. Jesus came from my part of the world. He didn't come from China. He didn't even come from the United States of America. Even though that's my favorite country, the greatest country in the world. He came from the Holy Land. What else good came from there? The Bible. Isn't that a precious gift to the world? And what else? Ten Commandments, the prophets. Christianity, the apostles, the gospel. So, you know, with all the negativity on the screen, I mean, you want to watch TV today? (laughs) All day, yesterday, all night, the day before, all day today is about the shooting in Orlando. You know, I wish the news media would kind of give the people a break, you know, like commercials and, and, and talk about something else and come back, oh, no. 24 hours reporting, reporting, reporting. And so no wonder people feel negative about everything that comes from there. And like somebody this morning said, Dr. Saman, even though you come from Syria, we love you anyway. Thanks a lot. You know, I appreciate (laughs) that. You know, it's interesting. I've been living in this country for 50 years. 50 years, that's a lot, isn't it? Which means I'm older than 50. Did you hear what I said? I've been a citizen of America for 50 years. That's a long time. And I came to this country as a teenager, and people mostly focus on my teenage years 50 years ago. Can you believe 50 years That's a long time. That's before many of you were born 50 years ago. My wife and I have been married 44 years. We celebrate our 44th anniversary last week. I want to thank God publicly before all this audience, how my wife is so loving, patient. She put up with me for 44 years. Would somebody say amen to that? Anyway, now, somebody, I'm I'm responding to some question. You. Oh, yesterday's meeting generated a lot of questions. And that's why for the first time in my writing career, the textbook you have unused, Abraham's other son, has 250 questions. The most puzzling questions Western people have about the subject. I compile these questions, all kinds of questions about that part of the world, Islam, how to witness to Muslims and Jewish people, all these questions. Jesus in Islam, Bible, all of that. Why? Because we all have questions. It's the most complex subject. And these questions have answered simple, short, and clear answers to any question you want to ask. And so the question is asked, did Ellen White say anything about Islam? You know, I guess Ellen White's supposed to say everything about everything, right? And if she doesn't say something about Daniel chapter 11, people really get perturbed. Whoever said Ellen White was supposed to say everything about everything? I mean, come on, give her a break. Did she say anything about Yeah, two or three times. And so right now I want to tell you where she says something and the context. And don't believe anybody who tells you Sister White said this unless you have the reference. That helps. It helps also not to, have, to actually read it for yourself. So we're going to read it today. I want to look at your book at, two, at 203. Now, how many brought you? We, we are letting you borrow this book temporarily for the duration. We only have few. How many do not have the book Abraham's Other Son? The textbook for our seminar. My wife is coming around to share a copy with you. Would you please, sir, take the others at the edge? There are five of them. And help my wife with that. Now, use them till the end of this period. Then bring them back so we can use them with other people. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. My wife is over there. And probably you can come to this side here. One per family. We don't have. We're running out. Please don't underline it. Or mark it. I want to use it with other groups as well. Did I say page two or three? Yes. Two or three. Now you see this question. Question number 19. <clears throat> On page 203. How many still would like to see the book? Raise your hand. Let me count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20. What, what, what about our faith that people would come to this meeting? You see, isn't that nice to have a wife who is my helpmate, my best friend, and I say, play this piece on the piano? She does. Please bring me water. She brings me water. If I'm stressed out at night and it's hard for me to go to sleep, she serenades me with the harp and I fall asleep right away. Isn't that a wonderful life, partner? And now to be consistent with all my affirmation, my, would you please, sweetheart, go to the ABC and talk to the manager, Tim, my best friend, and say, we need... To borrow some of your books, all of them. Because <laughs> we only have 15 over there. says, so Bring all of them, and let them give you a little box to put them so they won 't drop them along the way. You see, I think I micromanage. I think about everything. Little box so they won't drop on the way. Look at this statement. There are about three statements only. Look at this statement here. Uh, the question 19: How did God use the Islamic, Ottoman Empire? because yesterday we talked about the pair of pliers the western side clamping on western christianity but stopped at Perpignan, france and now we go to the ottoman empire from the east the other part of the pair of pliers to safeguard the protestant reformation is emphasis it's very interesting that all the reformation movements were crushed except Martin Luther. Isn't that interesting? You wonder why. And the answer is here in the second paragraph. In the second paragraph, Great Controversy, page 197, we find this pertinent and enlightening statement in the book Great Controversy, page 197. And I'm quoting now that's the second paragraph on that page. God's providence had held in check the forces that oppose the truth the truth of the reformation emperor charles v was bent on crushing the reformation but often as he raised his hand to strike he had been forced to turn aside the blow again and again the immediate destruction of all who dared to oppose themselves to rome appeared inevitable but at a critical moment the armies of the Turks, Muslim Turks, appeared on the eastern frontier to safeguard the Reformation in its infancy, and therefore the Reformation had been left to strengthen and extend. That's a very enlightening statement. That God used the Muslim Empire. to stop Emperor Charles de- destroying their formation so it can thrive and grow. I mean, is that biblical? Does God sometimes use heathen nations to chastise his people? Did he do it in the Bible? He used Assyria and he used Babylon to chastise Israel. And the process to take the gospel through Assyrians and Babylonians and to chastise his people. Now, look at page 204. Question 20. You know, I like to read interviews in magazines. It's easier to read, you know, question answer. Question 20 on page 204. Could God in his providence use certain challenges to wake up the Christian world from his spiritual lethargy and religious apathy. I don't want to answer this question myself. I just want Martin Luther, the great reformer, to answer it himself. So we mentioned something, what Ellen White said. Now, what did Martin Luther say? And you look at the second paragraph. Beginning with the words, considering the regrettable condition of the church in Martin Luther's day, more than five centuries ago, he thought, Luther now thought, that Muslim challenge of the Turks served to contain rampant Christian apostasy. He also thought that such a challenge from outside the church helped prevent the Holy Roman Empire in league with papal power. From snuffing out the infant Protestant Reformation Martin Luther had this to say about this crisis in leading the Protestant Reformation against great opposition and I'm quoting now verbatim Luther declared that to fight the Muslim Turks is to resist the judgment of God against men's sins interesting statement like Jeremiah was preaching God's word when he told the Jews, do not resist Nebuchadnezzar. Well, God is not patriotic. We have to resist Nebuchadnezzar. And God said through Jeremiah, no, go with him. I'm appointing you to go to exiles to repent. And Jeremiah almost died, exiled by his own people for being accused of being a traitor. Yet God loves the whole world. He can use anybody he wants. He has no respect for boundaries or nationalities. Because behind the scenes, he is accomplishing his will. It's almost empty. My wife fed me such a good meal, so tasty, that it brought a lot of thirst to me so for, I'm willing to give another 15 bonus points whenever you feel like, because this will be finished, by the way. I'm really thirsty. Then just make sure you have a bottle of water for me, and I look at you with favor. So I thought you bring your bottle of water to me, and you start drinking it. Well, I... All right. Now then. Somebody asked me a question. I'm not depriving you. you Thank you. I appreciate it. What's your name? Tisha what? Diller. Diller. Okay. Fifteen bonus (laughs) points. Okay. (laughs) You know, I was going to ask to bring your bottle, sir. But your bottle was half empty. This is full. In my culture, in the Holy Lands where I come from, you have a common container to drink from. It has a nozzle. It's called a brick. And so everybody can drink with the nozzle, the water coming into your mouth, without having to touch it, so everybody can use it. So this doesn't have a nozzle. So let me see, because you might want to use this. I don't want to deprive you of your water. So I want my mouth won't touch it. Now I'm going to drink. Let me, you know, hope the best for me, okay? Let me see if I can drink this here to hear without touching it. But please don't make me laugh. I might spray you, okay? <laughs> Would somebody say something? <coughs> you want your water back, anybody? It's, it's not touched. <clears throat> Excuse me? For what I did, I was hoping somebody would give me some bonus, something. Now somebody said, "Doctor Simon, you better be biblical." And it was a man, by the way. It wasn't a woman. Only Sarah laughed at what God said. Not Abraham. Abraham wasn't the laughing type. Only Sarah. You know, only women chuckle and laugh. Men are more serious and more dignified. So, do you find me the biblical reference? That Abraham laughed at God, reminding him of the promise of giving him a son from Sarah. So, give me the Bible text. I'd like you to answer. I'd like us to answer this question of this gentleman, and uh, <clears throat> and it's on page thirty nine, please. <clears throat> it's good to have a Bible answer to people's questions, isn't it? It feels good. Bible has got an answer. It's not my answer. If you look at You know, first, second. In the middle of the page, it says second. In the middle of the paragraph that starts with the word second, I'm reading doubt because Sarah was too old to bear a child, surprise because he had pinned all his hopes on his beloved son Ishmael. So instead of praising God for his marvelous promise, he laughed. The laughter of doubt and surprise. Notice how this reaction is immediately linked to his hopes for Ishmael. And I'm quoting now from Genesis 17, 17, 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Ellen White says in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, Abraham got used to his son Ishmael. He was his buddy. They did things together as a couple, son and father. It broke his heart asunder when he was told to say goodbye to his son Ishmael. But that's the way it's supposed to be. Because Ishmael could not take the place of the promised miracle son. It wouldn't have fit until you type and antitype schema of Jesus being given by God as a sacrifice to save the human race. Well, sir, Pastor Saman, only Israel was blessed by God. You know, we, we need to be intelligent on the subject. God knew the problem because Abraham and Sarah equally One against his will. They both laughed. And they both adopted the law of Hammurabi about a male servant and about a son from a maiden equally to be blamed. But God, that's the kind of God we have. He takes the problem we cause. By his grace, he tries to bring something good out of it. Such a fair, loving God he is. And you'll find this on page 39. And uh, page, let's go with 39 first. Write the page you're on, 39. Look at the beginning of the first paragraph. Listen to God's reassuring words that must have brought her aching heart, relief, and hope. What God said to Hagar when she was fleeing in the wilderness. And I'm quoting from Genesis 15:10. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Now, you would think this was about Isaac. Actually, it's about Ishmael. I'm just trying to bring balance and clarity and the truth forth. So we have a positive view about witnessing to these people who need to know about Jesus because they don't have a Savior. They need the Savior. They need the the assurance of salvation like everybody else in the world. Oh, now then, look at page 40. The first paragraph on page 40. But God did not ignore his servant's intercession and fixation over his teenage son, but immediately responded with the reassurance in verse 20. I'm quoting. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. By the way, what's the meaning of the name Ishmael? As for your son, Ishmael, I heard you. Interestingly, the sentence, I heard you, defines the name Ishmael. Any word in Hebrew that ends with the letter E-L, that's God, L. Ishmael, God heard you. God hears our prayers. What's the meaning of the name Isaac you know how it sounds in Hebrew it's Hawk and the verb in Hebrew or American Arabic for laughing is it's hak. it kind of sounds like the sound of the name laughter God hears our prayers laughter if you were in the place of Sarah and, and Abraham Every time you call the name of your son, it's Huck. You pronounce the word laughter. It reminds me of what we laughed at God's promises, and look what happened now. The promise was fulfilled in this name and the sound of this name. In the Old Testament, parents gave names to their children to indicate how God was leading them, important events in their lives. But yet, in the Western world, you know, we we just give names without a lot of thought. You know, uh, my student Hunter, H-U-N-T-E-R. You know, I'm not used to young ladies being called hunters. I thought hunting belonged to men. But today, you know, anything goes. My name is Hunter. My name is Taylor. These are nice sounding names. And other parents choose names and they mix two names together and it doesn't have a specific meaning to indicate a special event of God's leading. In the Old Testament, it was different to remind people how God was leading them. Then I'm looking at page 47. And I'm looking at the last ten lines on page 47 in Genesis 25, 13 to 16. The names of Ishmael's sons. By the way, how many Sons that God blessed Ishmael with five, seven, fourteen, or twelve. Isn't it interesting? The number twelve is very interesting. God was saying, I try my best to bless Ishmael like I bless Israel. Twelve tribes, twelve princes. And the names of Ishmael's sons and tribes are alluded to, and these were the names of. Sons of Ishmael, by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, name was Nabajoth, then Qedar, then Abdil, Adbil, and Mizbam, and on on, till you have the 12 names mentioned. You see, what do you mean? Did you come? I read it 12. Why would they be 12? That's unreal. That's unusual. God was intentional about that. If you go back to page 40, look what it says on page 40. page 40, the first paragraph, and I want to finish reading that verse which I didn't, which says at the end of it, Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes. 12, there it is, the number 12. You know, for some reason, I feel so comfortable speaking to this group. You know, I'm being videotaped and all of that, but I feel very comfortable. I think, I know the reason why. Because it's a big place, is intimidating. Because I spoke at the scam meeting three years ago for every meeting it was packed. And uh, so I feel comfortable with this audience here. And I thank you all for coming. I really do. And thank you for sitting toward the front. It helps me. It helps me feel better about speaking to you. And the question I want to ask you now. You folks in the front, the people who sit in the front are the A students. I want to give you a challenge now. I have a question to ask you. Not the rest of the class, just you. You think when Jesus comes and takes us to heaven, will Ishmael and his brother Isaac be in heaven together? Don't just look at me. Start thinking, okay? Huddle together. Right, but in other, my, the, what's behind my question is, will we know Isaac will be saved will Ishmael be saved the father of all the Muslims now I don't know what you think of Muslims I'm just asking about their father Ishmael you think he'll be saved that. you're in the right direction that's good yeah not the full bonus points but you know part of them what do you think sir you the one who didn't give me your water what do you think what about you ladies? The men, you know, have a different. What do you think? What? Okay, you're knowledgeable about the subject, best your heart. Let's look at the whole audience here. How many in this class believe that Ishmael, the father of all the Muslims today, 1.7 billion of them, more than a fifth of the world population, will be saved in heaven. Raise your hand. Okay. The others who do not believe he'll be in heaven. Raise your hand. Well, uh, and most of you are not sure. But there are more people who said, yes, he'll be saved in heaven. Well, don't take my word for it, please. Let's look at the reference here. Page 51. 51. And the question 14. How do you view the reunion of Ishmael and Isaac at the funeral rites of their father Abraham? Abraham lived to the ripe age of 175 years. The biblical record states that Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man, and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac, And Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Genesis 25, 7-9. This is just the introduction to answer your question. Then we look at page 52. And there on page 52, it tells you when he was cast away from the house of Abraham, Ishmael, veered away from God, felt offended, carried a chip on his shoulder. How could my father cast me away? I'm his son. He's the only father I have. Unlike his mother from Egypt, his mother introduced the Egyptian woman he married, and he veered away from God, living in the desert as a wild man. But she said, Ellen White said by inspiration, what he learned from his father Abraham about the truth of God, never left him. Parents who have prodigal sons, did you hear what I just said? Even with Ishmael who became a prodigal son, the truth his father taught him as a child, he never forgot. I want to bring hope to your hearts. That even though when Satan comes to steal and rob and kill, John 10.10, 10. Christ comes to give life, to give it more abundant. I'm praying with all my heart, whatever Satan stole from you, he will restore. Whatever Satan stole from you, Christ will restore. Because Satan specialized in thievery. And Jesus specialized in restoration. The things you taught your children who are maybe moving away from God, they will remember. Because God promised, I will contend with those who contend with you, and I'll save your children. He never forgot what his father Abraham taught him. Look at page 54. And now this is the answer coming to you. Top of the page, the two lines above question 16. Are you with me? Am I clear enough? Page 54, the two lines above question number 16. This comes from Patriarchs on Prophets, page 175. And look what it says here. Just as Ishmael went home to bid his father farewell, in his heart he was never far from home. With the principles that Abraham instilled in him as a youth, Your children, your your wayward children might be far away physically, but who knows in their hearts they're close to home. God will cause them to long for home. Ishmael was never far away from home, though he was far in distance. This spiritual upbringing was never far from his mind. And now I come to the quotation verbatim. In his latter days, Ishmael repented of his evil ways and returned to his father's God. That gives me the incentive to witness to the children of father Ishmael who will be in heaven. I like to witness to his children. I like them, as many of them as possible, to join their Father in heaven. And many of them, that's happening to them today. And I just want to say here that I did a special study. on What I call the advantages, advantages. Seven-day Adventists have in reaching the Muslim people and the Jewish people, the children of Abraham through Ishmael and Isaac. We have unique advantages other denominations don't have. Such as the seven-day Sabbath. When Muhammad came on the scene, he believed in the keeping of the seven-day Sabbath. Did you know that? The Quran teaches that. The Holy Book teaches that. And he despised the Jews. You see this family feud? So he couldn't keep the seven-day Sabbath. That's what some Christians say. You know, how could we keep Saturday? It's a Jewish day. The, the Sabbath's only for the Jews. Does the Bible say that? Do you find a text that says the Sabbath's only for the Jews? I only find one thing about that. The Sabbath was made for man. For humanity. And there's more to humanity on planet Earth than the Jewish people. In the Garden of Eden, he rested on it, blessed it, sanctified it, and there was no Jew on planet Earth. It was only Adam and Eve. Because somebody told me one day, he said, you know, but Adam and Eve, they're Jewish people. They're not. Come on now. We don't even have any races. that. At our first parents were not Jews. So when I say this to me, the people are shocked. I always thought, I always thought Adam and Eve were Jews. Really? I mean, the Jews are named after Judah. And there was no Judah in the kingdom of Eden. It was many, many years later. The Sabbath was given to humanity. Why? It relates to all of humanity because it is a reminder That we came from the creative hands of Jesus and that Jesus died for us and rested in the grave on the Sabbath from his work of redemption it reminds creation and redemption a very great reminder so anyway and the Quran says this and I think I can find it look what it says Page 258. I mean, there are 12 things which are advantageous to us to reach out to the Muslim world. The same thing to the Jewish people that other denominations don't have. Thank God for this movement. We're equipped with the Bible, three angels' messages, the message just for these last days, plus unique advantage to reach the unreached people of the world. Page 258. And that's from Quran, you know, I translate directly from the Arabic into English, so it's Quran, Surah, or chapter 2, and verse 65. I would like some of my A students to read that for me, okay? Excuse me, sir, you're sitting in the front, okay? You're sitting in the front, sir. You're an h student. so would you like to read that for me, please? Can you stand up and read it for me? Please say yes, okay? Say yes, and you get five bonus points right here. You see, I'm looking at the, se- the end of the second paragraph, okay? On, on page, page. 25- 258. 258. And while he's finding it, I'll tell you exactly the question, question three. Do the Muslims have a holy day on which to worship God? What does the Quran teach about the biblical Sabbath? I'm looking at the, at the middle of the second paragraph. I proceeded to read to him the middle of the second paragraph. Yes, I, see it. I proceeded to read to him from his Arabic Quran the rather strong language concerning the punishment of those who transgress all prohibitions and saddened. and now we're quoting from the Quran. What does the Quran say? And well ye know those amongst in the manner of the Sabbath, we said to them, Be ye ye despised and rejected. Thank you, sir. You read very well. Thank you. If you didn't hear it, let me read to you the last part. And the Quran says in chapter 2, verse 65, it says, And well you knew those amongst you who transgress in the matter of the Sabbath. We said to them, be apes, despised and rejected. Please, I beg of you, give a Bible, give Bible studies on the Sabbath, but don't ever tell the people who don't keep the seven-day Sabbath, God is going to punish you by making you into monkeys. That's not a very winsome approach. That's not my, the, the approach is not my point. My point is the Quran goes against the breaking of the seven-day Sabbath commandment. That's the point. Thank God for the seven-day Sabbath. And the Muslims know Sunday is the wrong day. The seven-day Sabbath, they broke it, and God was against that, but couldn't stand having anything to do with the Jewish people. That's why the longest-winning family feud. So what do they have? The weekend was taken up by the children of Abraham, and these Muslims were looking for a day in the weekend. And the only day that was vacant was Friday. And that's why the Muslim people are in search of keeping the holy day, because Friday is not a holy day for them. It's a prayer day. They work in the morning, go to the mosque to pray at noon. In the afternoon, they go back to work. They're in search of the holy day, the Sabbath. They don't have it. And the Quran advocates the kingdom of the Sabbath. And we, as seven-day Adventists, when we study with them the Sabbath, just use this text and say, the Lord welcomes you for his holy day. And please remember, the Sabbath is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. The Sabbath was made for humanity. And remind them of their first parents, Adam and Eve. It was given to them in the Garden of Eden. It's for everybody. It's just like Jesus is not for the Christians only. Jesus is for the world. The world needs Jesus because nobody could ever solve the two biggest problems, sin and death, except Jesus, who is righteousness and life eternal. Please, let's not be like the Jewish people to hoard the message to ourselves. We to share it with other people. What people? All the world. Jesus died for the whole world. And Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel as long as they're human beings. Okay? Now then, you know, there are others in this chapter. The health message. The uh, the investigative judgment. The sanctuary message. State of the dead. We have more in common with Muslims about the state of the dead than all other Christians they believe when you die, you rest. Isn't that nice, by the way, when you struggle in this life? And life can be very tough, right? Sickness and struggle and disappointment and loss. Isn't that nice that people can rest for a change? I certainly don't want people to go to purgatory after they suffer a tough life. I don't want them to go to hell after they suffer such a tough It's nice to rest. And the Bible says you rest, your thoughts perish, your feelings perish. And the Bible says when a person dies, it's a reversal action for creation. When God created Adam in the beginning, breathed into him the breath of life. He became a living being. And now, Solomon's Ecclesiastes, when a person dies, the opposite thing happens, the reversal process. Man goes to the dust where he came from. And the breath goes back to God who gave it in the first place. Isn't that simple, by the way? No haunted houses, no purgatories, no hell, nothing. When you die, your body goes back to the ground where it came from. And what about the, 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 the body belongs to the ground, it goes back to where it came from. What about the breath? It came from God because God breathed into him his life. So the breath goes back to God. That's so all. Make it simple, please. Make it simple. Don't complicate it. Muslims believe in that process, and somebody asked me yesterday, yes, but but these terrorists jihadas. These jihadas these um, believe if they blow up themselves, they go to paradise directly. This is not the standard Islamic teaching. This is a tradition highlighted, emphasized by suicide bombers to encourage people to join their cause. And they're told, if you blow up yourself in the cause of Islam, you'll go directly to heaven, paradise. That's why they smile when they blow up themselves. And they say, we love to die more than you love to live, because they believe instantly they'll be in paradise, And one of the many, many fringe benefits of being in paradise is they'll be provided with 70 virgins. What an incentive. There's something special about women. And who can handle 70 virgins anyway? I'm totally satisfied with one wife one wife is enough. Would somebody say Amen to that? Okay, that's good. I agree with you. Even Muhammad said, "You can marry as many as four, on the condition you treat them equally." And he said nobody can meet this condition. Nobody can treat four wives the same. They are always jealousies. If you don't believe me, go to the Bible and check with Jacob. Finally. Page 260, that's the final thing we'll talk about. Question five. What is the Adventist added toward reaching out to those who have been neglected, and what is the best approach to reach them with the gospel? Uh, I appeal to Christ's method alone. You know what Alan Weiss Ministry of Healing page one hundred forty three? The great need of the world today is for Christ to be revealed in our lives, and his method gives genuine success in reaching the people. What did he do? He mingled with people as one who desired their good. Second, he sympathized with them. Third, he met their needs. Fourth, he won their trust. Fifth, he bade them to follow him as Savior and Lord. And sixth, as they followed him as Savior and Lord, He trained them to be fishermen. And the concluding statement for this method of Christ that gives genuine success, if this method is combined with God's love and prayer, it can never fail. This method I try to use to reach anybody I meet because it's guaranteed genuine success. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Loving Father in heaven, Help us to be patient with people. Give them benefit of the doubt. In the midst of mayhem, violence, and murder, and bombings, and millions of people are being destroyed, help us to see a glimmer of hope, a rainbow. To tell us you're behind the scenes, working out your will, and what's happening in the Middle East is to open the door of 1.7 billion people, Muslims, children of Ishmael, to turn to you as their father, Ishmael turned to you, and join him in heaven so we trust you. Help us to be winsome witnesses for you, using your approach and new methods that give genuine success in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse